Private Lender Podcast, Episode 51. The Private Lender Podcast quote of the day comes to us from Warren Buffett, who said, Unless you can watch your stock holding decline by 50% without becoming panic-stricken, you should not be in the stock market. This is the Private Lender Podcast, the show that shares practical advice and know-how for new and seasoned lenders, from private mortgages on single-family houses to joint ventures on commercial projects and beyond. Discover details about investment vehicles that you won't find at your local bank or online broker. Listen and learn from private lenders and real estate investors, as well as from professionals and entrepreneurs, as they share the details, strategies, and the insight that allows for successful and prosperous lending. Now, get ready to increase your ROI. Here's your host, Keith Baker. What is going on? How you doing, Lender Nation? Welcome to the Private Lender Podcast, the only podcast dedicated to creating and supporting successful and confident private lenders. My name is Keith Baker, and you're listening to episode number 51. And it's my mission to create an alternative economy where people just like you and me can confidently invest and build wealth with old world pragmatism and without banks or Wall Street brokers. Today, I've got the good fortune of speaking with Brandon Cottingham of Major Gains Capital, which is a real estate investment fund. And Brandon explains how, he has a very interesting story, how he, he got into real estate and how he ultimately became to be a principal partner in, in a fund. But before we get to hear Brandon's story, let's go ahead and thank our sponsors. This episode of the Private Lender Podcast is proudly sponsored by CountyTaxSaleApp.org. With CountyTaxSaleApp.org, you get a very powerful lead generation tool in the palm of your hand, on your laptop, desktop, or any device you choose. Get real-time alerts for between 300 and 600 properties every month that are coming up for the foreclosure auction in Harris County, Texas, the third largest county in the United States. With this intuitive design and interface, the County Tax Sale App lets you search all properties with highly motivated sellers that are coming up for foreclosure auction. Simply search the map and click on a property to learn important details about that property, such as the address, owner's contact info, minimum bid, and a street view photo. You can save properties to your favorites and contact the sellers directly and receive email and text alerts if one of your favorite properties is redeemed or canceled prior to the auction. You can even listen to Sammy Gupta on episode 28 of this podcast as he discusses all the powerful features and benefits of CountyTaxSaleApp.org. For more information, go to the Private Lender Podcast sponsor page, the show notes page for this episode, or to CountyTaxSaleApp.org. That's CountyTaxSaleApp.org. And I really do appreciate the support of our sponsor, CountyTaxSaleApp.org. And you guys should go over to CountyTaxSaleApp.org and check out some of the new features they have. Like you're able to download the entire foreclosure list in an Excel or CSV format. And with all the homeowner information, and also they have an advanced filtering to drill down on the types of properties. So, for example, the square footage of the land, the living area square footage, the exemption type, bid value, and many other other ways you can drill down. So go check that out, countytaxcellapp.org. And then always want to give a, a shout out and a thank you to Landon Rothstein and Ray Sasser over at 713 RIA. You can find out more information at 713RIA.com. That's 713REIA.com. Okay, so now that the formalities are out of the way, I'd like to mosey on over into this interview with Brandon. And I just wanted to say, I've met Brandon locally a few times, and he just got one of those, that, that look of determination in his eye. And he's going to hustle, and he's going to find a way to, to get things done. And to know him a little more, I found his, his story was uh, was quite interesting. And so I invited him to come on to the podcast. So enjoy. Enjoy. 
Linda Nation, I hope you're ready for a very interesting conversation because today I interview Brandon Cottingham with Major Gains Capital. He's the principal partner. And Brandon, I want to thank you for coming on and welcome to the Private Lender Podcast. Keith, thank you so much for um, having me here. It's really an honor. I'm very humbled to be asked by you to be on your show. I follow your podcast. You got a lot of great content on there. So just to be a part of this conversation is, like I said, an honor for me. Thank you for that. And uh, your 10 bucks is in the mail for that. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate that. 20, man. I thought you said it was 20. 20. Oh, no, but see, well, times are tough. Um, and you know, we just had the midterms and so all the judges turned and switched over. So see, now the money's different now. Um, oh, yeah, gotcha. <laughs> but, uh, no, you, you and I met about a year ago at one of Stephen Kaufman's events. And Stephen, of course, was uh, interviewed on episode number one. And mm-hmm. I was honored to have him. And so that's how you and I started uh, talking. And then lo and behold, we keep running into each other at various industry events. Finally, here we are sure. together. And you have a very, very interesting background. And I'd love for the listeners. Uh, I know you moved to Texas when you were young, grew up uh, south side of Houston and Pearland. Mm-hmm. And uh, Take it. From, I'm gonna let you. I'll set that up and let you. Yeah, take it. cool. Appreciate it. Parents, both my parents are from small towns in North Louisiana. Uh, they both went to Grambling State University up there. It's an HBCU, very famous HBCU. A lot of tradition, a lot of strong football tradition up there. Uh, they moved, graduated college, moved to Houston where the opportunities were. I was maybe about four or five when we moved here. I ended up in Pearland when we moved there. I think I was third grade. Now, this was back when it was a, a small town. There was no beltway. There was no, it was like one major highway. You know, it was, it was 15 minutes to the grocery store. So a small town, very rural to, by today's standards. So my father was a musician. On my dad's side, everybody was a musician. My uncle was a music major, taught music. He was a jazz musician. He was a jazz teacher, aunts, uncles. They all, all played instruments and, you know, orchestras and symphonies, things like that. So music was kind of, it's kind of, it's in my blood. So I picked it up. You know, he taught us how to read music at a young age. I was very blessed at Imperiland at the time, and they're still actually really good. It's found out the high school is going to state competition again for marching band. And, you know, I guess they're 6'8 now. But when I was there, we were a third and fifth in state in marching band in 5A both years that we went. So third my sophomore year, fifth my senior year. I was always kind of in a leadership position. You know, we would go competitions, just blow them out the water. So just a level of acumen for discipline that we had performing at that level and, and at that level. I learned a lot from our band director, Mr. Jack Ferris. You know, I have a lot of respect for him. Taught us a lot. From that, I was able to, uh, a friend of mine actually, it's crazy, dared me, bet me that she would make the Marine Corps band before I would. So we had, it was an interview process, an uh, audition. You know, I'm super competitive. I was like, no way, I'm going to beat you. There's no way you're going to beat me. So we ended up going to Lake Charles. There's like eight, eight people. I think I was the youngest person there. Everybody went. I went last. Dude came up. Nobody had made it the whole day and passed the audition. Everybody's coming in. Nope. I go do my thing. He's, I remember him putting his pen down. I was sitting in this room. He goes, congratulations. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And he was like, you made it. And I was like, okay. Here it was. You know, I'm tracked to go to college. Parents are, you know, a long conversation with them. The recruiter coming to the house and all that. And we went in and basically, long story short, I ended up in the Marine Corps band. And so I went to, I graduated high school, 95, turned 18 that September. That October, I was in a boot camp. I really enjoyed the boot camp experience. It was freaking crazy, intense, but it's one of those things I look back and I'm like, man, you know, if I can do that, it really doesn't matter to me. Anything is possible. You know, to be able to push your body to those limits, your mind to those limits and, and just the 
to keep going, to keep going, to keep going and understanding how far the human experience can really go. You know, I never reached anything like on a SEAL level or special forces level. You know, I know some of those guys, just highly intelligent men, what they do and how they do is amazing. On that level, I'm very fortunate. I never saw any combat. I have a lot of respect for combat veterans, a lot of uh, good friends of mine are combat veterans. But from that, like I said, I had a, a cool experience in the Marine Corps. I got to do a lot of cool stuff, meet some cool people. You know, I was part of the pomp and circumstance of the Marine Corps, the military part, being the musician, end up in San Diego, down there for a while. So, Did you go to M- MCRD in San Diego or Paris Island? Where did you do Oh, that? yeah. I'm a Hollywood Marine. You know, okay. I'm straight up Hollywood Marine. Everybody west of the Mississippi goes to San Diego and everybody east goes to Paris Island. Gotcha. So on the east side, they, got, they always tout the sand fleas, but on the west, we got those mountains. So we have to hump those mountains up there. So yeah, it was a cool experience. You know, San Diego, I ended up actually getting stationed there too, AMCRD San Diego. That's been tough. It was, it was hard. (laughs) It was a lot of distraction. For a young Marine, it was a lot of distraction. I'll just put it to you that way. (laughs) I've heard the mountains and scenery are very nice down there. That's all I know. Oh yeah, the scenery is real nice and the mountains and the valleys. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. All right, we're leaving that one in too. All right, good. I appreciate your honesty and your service. Thank you for that. (laughs) Man, oh, all right, awesome. so uh, Marine Corps band, what'd you play? I played the euphonium. It's like a mix between a trombone and a tuba. It's kind of the closest instrument to the human voice. It was a great experience. Like I said, a lot of marches, a lot of, uh, we did the Roosevelt Parade a couple, I did the Roosevelt Parade a couple times. And, uh, oh, cool. You know, made some, I've still got some great relationships from that time period. I graduated in Sugarland just about a few years before you did. So I'm sure that we saw each other at the UIL competitions and whatnot. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Marshall yeah, competitions, sure Road Stadium and Katy and all that fun oh, stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. Back yeah. in the, yeah, Roads, yeah. Yep. Yeah, so. Imagine uh, everybody taking all the awards home. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's what's up. Awesome. Well, cool. All right, so once you uh, you get out of the Marine Corps, would you just have, I know you were just flush with cash and you decided to open up a fund or what, what happened? Yeah, man, I was super rich. I was <laughs> man. Yeah, that was, yeah, I, I, that was bankrolling me. Actually, I got out of the military. I didn't know what the hell I was going to do with my life. I was married at the time, playing an instrument anymore. You know, I just kind of really didn't have a tracking plan. Just did odd jobs, just, just trying to figure it out in life. Didn't know where I was going to go. I, so I eventually got divorced, eventually ran out of money. It's Southern California. You know, it's in the 90s. It's still expensive. Right, basically ran out of money and was like, okay, let me go back, get my life together and see what's up. Came back home, started going to school. Still was just kind of figuring my way around. I did sold cars and waiting tables for a pretty long time. I got introduced to network marketing. Uh, it was a great experience for me. Uh, the people that I was introduced into that business, they were very big on education, you know, knowledge of self, understanding, you know, it's self improvement. So I started reading a lot of books. Uh, the first book I ever read on that subject was The Master Key to Riches by Napoleon Hill. A lot of people know his book, Think and Grow Rich, but to me, I like Masticated Riches better because it's more holistic approach. It's not just about money. Like a lot of people are gravitated to that because they're on the money, money hunt, which is a part of it. And that's why I love more than Master Key because it talks about all the 12 riches and what they are. And, and it tells you why finances has the most importance. And just real quick, he explains it as finances have the most importance because it's only one of the 12 riches you can actually measure. So you can't measure integrity. You can't measure love. You can't measure honesty. But you can measure whatever denomination that we have agreed upon is our means of, of exchange. It's the only reason why that one, most people put so much importance on it, perceived importance. So I started reading books like that, Built to Last, Good to Great. Of course, I read all the Robert Kiyosaki books. I have 
literally every single book he's ever written, I've read. And I started reading. You know, my parents aren't business owners. They're really, really good at what they do. They're great at earning a living. But I knew I just wanted more. And after that Marine Corps experience, I just knew there was more you could have, more you could be. Didn't know what that looked like, really. Finally, it was like, I got to do something different. I just went back to school. I was like, let me go to school for what I love. So I went to school for audio engineering. Went to HCC here in Houston. Got a degree, associate's degree in that. It was an amazing experience. It really kind of helped me ground myself and really find myself again and where I was trying to go. From there, I ended up going to Texas Southern, trying to get a four-year degree. I was supposed to get an audio engineering degree with a minor in business. I knew I wanted to own my own studio, so I wanted to have the business acumen as long as it was well with the knowledge of the actual operations also. From there, ended up going into getting a finance degree, focused in risk management, which is probably one of the best experiences and decisions I've made. A buddy of mine was like, why are you doing management? And it's nothing against management, but he was like, you're smart enough. You need to do this finance thing. And I was like, why? He was like, well, finance is like being an engineer in science. You leave with hard skills that you can then go and you can apply and you can apply them across many different aspects in business. Counting is the language of business, but finance is, is the sister to that, which is the projection of business, the manipulation of those currencies. And the accounting is kind of what has happened because of the basis of the finance. So uh, when I understood that, I really fell in love with it and just ran off with that. And it's been one of the best decisions I've ever made. So Interesting. I got to ask you, Matt, were you part of the Ocean of Soul at TSU? No, I wasn't. You know what? It's funny that you asked that. I actually thought about going back. I hadn't played an instrument in almost a decade. So when I was at TSU, because I wasn't, I mean, I was like 32 or 33 when I went, got to TSU. I went to go one summer. I was like, okay, I've got this window. I really want to join the band. If I can get in, I can practice and I'll be able to get my chops up and by the time marching as the band starts, I'll get in. It just never worked out. So it's kind of one of those things, you know, the universe, God works in some mysterious ways. I think it was, just wasn't meant for me to do that anymore. So I shot my shot and it got shot down by the universe and I kept it moving. But I have a lot of respect for all those bands. My dad was a musician like that and the marching band at, at Grambling. So I love those shows, those performances. Uh, and I'll show, I'll show my sons YouTube videos. They'll check this out. You know, they're, they're so entertaining. I want to have my parents listen to this episode because back in the 80s, we'd go to the Astrodome for Oiler games. And nine times out of 10, the TSU Ocean of Soul would play the halftime show. Yes. And it was so funny because yes. they would come out, you know, almost a drum and bugle corps. They'd march out. They'd get their very rigid, man, that big bopping bass would just boom. boom. You know, after that, it was over. You know, even, even my parents, you know, they're, you know, country white folk were tapping their feet going, oh, this is fun. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was always an experience. My mom would always say, like, oh, who's playing halftime? Is it TSU? You know, we always keep going <laughs> My parents went to Sam Houston State, and, like, okay. you know, we'd watch Sam play, and it's like, man, this is boring. <laughs> like, yeah, the music's yeah, good. Yeah. There was so much energy. So I, I know we went down a rabbit hole. That's my fault, but I, I was just curious about it. All that. good, so, man. All good. Well, cool. Yeah. So after TSU, how? Uh, well, I guess TSU kind of didn't pick it up there. While I was at TSU, because I was a non-traditional student, you know, I'm like in my 30s and I'm right. like basically technically a freshman there because I got a, this audio degree and I'm trying to get this business degree now. So I'm technically a freshman. I'm a non-traditional student. I was like, man, let me take real advantage of this college experience while I'm here. So I joined organizations, really networked with the faculty and the staff that was there. I talked to a lot of the younger people that were there, really trying to help them. I befriended one young guy and from there he became one of my really good friends. We had an accounting class together. 
he was trying to, he was really having a struggle with it. I helped him out. And from there, he was like, I was in this group. I just wanted to do some good while I was in third ward. And I saw that there was needs and I want to come from family of giving services. I was raised in the church and we, we, you know, we did roadside cleanup. We took communion to the people and the, the elders and the old folks home. You know, we went and did house visits, sick and shut in, all that stuff. So my mom has always been in the politics. My grandfather's in the politics in North Louisiana. So I come from this family of giving. And so I knew when I was there, I wanted to make some kind of social impact. I didn't really know what it was. Ran across this opportunity, Urban Gardening. The sponsor that we had at the time was like, hey, go see this this guy, this farm in Fifth Ward. It's this Urban Farm. And I was like, Urban Farm? What is that? So I go there. I meet this guy. His name's Joe Isett. If you're interested in that kind of stuff, look him up on Instagram or Facebook, Joe Isett. He's doing a lot of great stuff around the city of Houston. So he had developed this urban farm at this old rice mill. And so you're there and he's growing like okra and tomatoes and kale and lettuce and corners. I'm like, what is this? When I, he told me it was on top of what used to be a parking lot. I'm like, what is this? This is crazy. I mean, it's this holistic, just really, really cool place. You know, they, they turned the loading dock into a, a big aquaponics farm. They had had a bunch of tilapia and blue crab in there and they were siphoning that off do uh, feed plants hydroponically. And it was amazing. They had chickens, all this stuff. Place is still there. But Joe now is moving around the city doing other things. But from that experience, I ended up getting this knowledge and getting this bug in my life about, man, okay, I can do that here in in Third Ward. So my buddy was like, yo, interested in connecting with the university to make this happen. They had torn down an old dorm. It was two acres. It was the exact same size as what this place was in Fifth Ward. We were like, dude, we can do the same thing. So Basically, me and my buddy, we went and we created lobby with the university for them to basically give us the servership over this, over this two acres in the middle of the city, which is amazing. And we turned it into an urban farm. Best part about it was we had a social impact aspect that where we engaged directly with the university, we engaged with faculty and the staff and the students of the university, engaged with the community itself. So we had a program we called the Icarus International Green Program. And he and I were the founders of that. And so that's how I got my first taste of executive level management and running an organization. So this was all totally conceptual. He and I came up with the concept. Uh, We had, so I learned about really understanding about your personal growth as a person and moving and and how you as a leader have to grow. Because a lot of times it's not about the people in your organization. Not mostly it's you. And when you fix you, the right people will be attracted to you and those things will work themselves out. And so far, we went to like three iterations of a board. It was bad. Like, it, I didn't know if we were going to make it. It's one of those things. It was my first little entrepreneur's taste of things. And you know, we were out here trying to raise money. You know, we're putting there this program. But it ended up being a great situation. I ended up getting being on sustainability board for the university. We worked projects for Earth Day, Sustainability Day. We were kind of the student representatives undergrad standpoint for the university in that voice of what we wanted to see and how we wanted to see the growth of the university. I was really privileged and really honored to be a part of that conversation. And from there, learned a lot about, you know, politics and how government side of things work. And then worked a lot with other smaller organizations kind of branched out across the city of Houston. So it was really cool. I find that highly interesting because, I mean, you jump straight into development. Not like, hey, I'm going to go buy a house and rent it out and then move. Granted, you're not a traditional student, but yeah, that's that quite an interesting story. Yeah, you know, I didn't even know what I was doing. So our advisor was like, man, you know, he's, our advisor was an architect by trade, but he was a sustainability director there. And he was like, you know, you're doing urban development. 
I was like, urban development, what are you talking about? He was like, dude, you're taking a piece of land, you're repurposing it for purpose of this or whatever it is you're creating a product. You know, granted, ours was specifically social impact. It was just something I was, some cool stuff I wanted to do to help people. And from that, it really was sparked for me. Oh, well, you mean people do that? And then it really kind of started going down that rabbit hole. What is this urban development thing? How does that work? Well, how can I get into that? You know, I don't swing a hammer. I don't have this, I can't build you a house. You know, I'm not a realtor. How do I leverage and get inside this industry? And so that was kind of my first entrance and understanding. Hey, I can do this real estate thing. My mom's a realtor and I kind of always kind of know about real estate. But I never really understood like what an investor was, how those things worked and the mechanisms that made all the mechanisms in place that made that happen. And from that experience, it really opened the door for me to be like, okay, this is how you make that. This is one way you can make those happen to get into real estate. That's cool. And and so now you are the principal partner of Major Gains Capital, a fund. So, And this is where I, I love your story. That's why I wanted to hear you say it and let the audience hear it. But also... You have a fund. And what I've always said is, you know, an easy way to get into private lending is to go loan to a hard money lender or put your money into a fund or crowdfunding or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think it's a great way if myself, I just made a, a private mortgage loan, went through the whole process. It was funny because to me, that was a leap of faith. Once I got to the other side, I realized all I did was just, I stepped over a line. There was no wide abyss or anything like that. No. You know, you look no. back, it's like, oh, that was such a small step. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Such a huge effort to get through it. So, and that's really one of the reasons why I wanted to bring you on because I find your fund so very interesting. So why don't you go ahead? And, you can only say certain things. So, so I'll more so talk more about kind of how I got to this point. Okay. So like I said, once I did the, started doing the development thing, I recognized, okay, I've always known, I'm reading these books, read all these business books, and, and I read books I forgot that I read. You know, and from the synopsis I got was one of them along the way, I just realized this is America. And the beauty of America is you can come here and you can create your own economy. And I didn't really know how that worked. So when I, so when I got in this finance thing, insurance, risk management insurance was my minor. And from that, I got to see how people were using life insurance as vehicles to create arbitrage. So if people don't know what arbitrage is, arbitrage is how banks make money. They take it, they have a pool of money here that they loan to these people at high rate of interest and then they pay the people that put the money in a low rate of interest out and then there's a spread there and they keep that. So if they're charging 10% to the business owner or to the entity that borrows money, they're giving the person who put the money in 2% where there's an 8% spread where the bank keeps that. When I realized that you could do that as an individual, I was like, well, man, I need to figure out how I can do that. I'm a big believer in alignment. You know, a lot of people call it faith, you know, walking with God, you know, whatever you want to call it, spirituality. So I met some people that were like, hey, you got to meet this guy. He teaches people how to put together funds. So I went, I met this guy and he was like, call this dude. I called him on the phone. He ends up, you know, we talked. Normally he only works with people who have long real estate history. Because I had finance knowledge, I understood the business side of it, the money side of it. So the guy's name is Joel Block. He's one of my mentors, and he's out of Southern California, and he teaches people how to set up these syndicated funds. Because I understood, so Joel always says the money's in the money. <laughs> when you understand that, and as a finance guy, I started, I really, I got it. I was like, oh, the money's in the money, because it didn't matter what, then it was just about the vehicle itself, but it still came around to the money's in the money. How do you make the money work? How do you make the money work for you and leverage 
understand the other mechanism programs you can get into to leverage your money. So from there, which is great because my best friend at the time, we talked about two weeks before I'm supposed to come up there. I called him. I was like, hey, I'm going to be in Austin a couple of weeks for this. And I wanted to connect with you while I was there. He was like, oh, good. What are you coming up here for? I said, man, I'm going to this symposium thing for real estate funds. He's like, man, I'm going to that thing. I was like, what are you serious? He's like, yeah. So we're best friends. Neither of us knew. He moved to Austin, so we hadn't really talked about it. So about two weeks beforehand, we found out. So fast forward from there, he and I, about a year ago, decided to do, this was three years ago, about a year and a half ago, we decided to partner up. Now he is the other principal partner in Major Gains Capital. And so we're, you know, I get to work with one of my best friends. We have another gentleman that's joined our team as well. They become one of our best friends also. So yes, it's been a really cool experience. And so I divest from that. So that's how we got into the capital markets and to owning a fund and all that stuff. Interesting. And what does your fund specialize in? What type of properties do you guys look for? Or projects, Um, maybe not just properties, but what type of projects are you looking at? We are basically an opportunity fund. So we're pretty open into what we do. So our capital group, what we specialize in more so capital stack management. So we can go in, we do deal formulation. So we're going to figure out what that deal looks like. You are uh, an opportunity fund. Yeah, we're pretty much opportunity fund. So I guess there's two parts to our business. There's the fund, then there's our LLC, the actual capital group that does that actually manages the fund. A lot of people don't understand that part of it. They're really a, a front and back end. Uh, like I said, the fund works as kind of like a bank, and we can go in and work with them, and we have a relationship with those group of investors. And there's setup that we have with them that pays, make sure they get paid first, and you know we get paid second. It's a great setup. I, I like that way. I tell people, you don't make money, I don't make money. So it creates that that trust there. Unlike Wall Street, who even in down markets when people lose and they still get bonuses. Yeah. I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. You have aligned your best interests with theirs. Exactly. Yeah. We recognize that, you know, for someone to lend us their hard-earned money and trust it with us because, you know, we're going to hold your money for a period of time and, you know, it's real estate, so it's not very liquid. But we're going to go in and, you know, there needs to be a level of trust there. I want my investors to feel, to understand that I'm not going to just run off with your money. A lot of people wonder about that sometimes. It's like, well, is this dude just going to take my money and be gone? I'm never going to see him again. But it's not like that because, like I said, I don't get paid. You don't get paid. I don't get paid. So it's in my best interest to make maximum return that I can make. Absolutely. Break it. Uh, break down your structure again. You said you have the front end and the back end. How does that work? Do you yeah. have an LLC that actually manages. So Major Gains Capital LLC manage. You know, is our is the fund manager. So what we do is, the fund manager actually goes out and finds the projects and the properties. So we can do everything from a single family flip up to Gosgrave if we wanted to, because we focus on the capital stack management. So and I don't know if people are familiar with capital stacks. Go ahead and break it down to its kind of 30,000 foot level. Yeah. So capital stack basically is the percentages of risk that investment groups take in taking down an asset. So, so let's say you have a skyscraper. There's going to be an equity, an equity piece or a debt piece, which would kind of be normally a traditionally that's a, a large investor, traditional institutional investor takes that down. It's kind of normally about, you know, 40, 50%, probably about 60% of the value of that skyscraper, then you're going to have what some people call a mezzanine, which is kind of, which is basically the LT, that equity portion of the, of the LTC. So a lot of programs are going to be just like, so like a single family flip, you'll get up to a percentage of the LTV or ARV. 
So you'll be able to go in and get 85% LTV, loan to value. So you've got to come up with that 15%. So that mezzanine is like the 15% or 10% mm-hmm. you might have to come up with. And as the investor on the deal, you've got to come up with 5% for, for your skin in the game, which would be 5% the equity portion that you put in. And then that's what, what they'll call the waterfall. And then based upon that schedule will be depending upon how people get paid out when the assets cash become profitable. Okay. Does that make sense? It's like a, we'll think of it as like a big single family home, right? Yeah. And it's from a private lending perspective. I want to see that investor have some skin in the game. So how much are you going to, you know, don't ask me to roll your closing costs into the note, you know, exactly. have some money right yeah. there. Yeah. Get going. You mentioned loan to value and then, but you also mentioned LTC. Is that your loan to cost? I assume. Yeah, it's loan to cost. So depending upon, so we do a lot of development stuff. Like I said, we can do a single family flip. But we focus more now development side. The ROI is correct. If the right, right rate of return on that investment is there, we'll go into We have very high due diligence standards that we use, our, that the professionals that we interface with and we hire have hired to work with us, very high due diligence standards. So if you make it past that and, and, that, and that project creates the right ROI, we'll invest with you in that project. So on the construction side, you get what's called loan to cost. That's the cost to create this asset. So whereas maybe like a finished product would be loan to value. Correct. So you've got to, so if you're building a house from the ground up, you're going to have a, a, a cost to build that and you'll get a percentage of that cost. And then once that asset is created, then it has a value to it. And then so as, as the end user, I would use the LTV to go in and buy that. You know, and that's would be the, the way I would be rated as the end user. That's a great way to explain it. And I just, just from my understanding, Major gains, you come in with the initial equity, the 5%, and then have, say, like institutional funding come in for the major part, like a, a bank or an insurance company, and then your mezzanine. Are you filling the mezzanine or that gap, or, who, it, or how do you? Uh... It all depends upon the cap. So okay. in some aspects, we will go in and, and just be kind of two-portion capital stack. And other set, set times, we have a guarantor base that we work with that are high net worth individuals that or other entities whatever their family trust or whatever the entity is that has the ability to kind of cover that mezzanine depending upon the size of the deal. So, you know, you've got a, a, you know, a $15 million deal. We might come in and pay a portion of that and then we'll have a guarantor come in and pay partner with us on that mezzanine. And depending upon the relationship, we might represent, so we'll represent the money and we'll come in and be the, so it'll still be a two portion capital stack but we'll represent all that mezzanine, that equity financing. So basically that 15% for that loan to cost or 15 to 20, we'll just represent that. And then have the institutional investor represent the other 80%. And we'll sit on top of that. Okay, gotcha. Mm -hmm. Great, okay. Well, cool. I understand it. I hope I'm breaking everyone uh, listening. is. I think they got it as well. Yeah. You mentioned cap real quick. Run us through the cap. Yeah, so cap is basically the capitalization, like the amount of money that we're looking the maximum amount of money that we'll put into a deal. So we work anywhere from 10 million to $50 million cap. That's like our, we'll cap out at 50 million. It's kind of the, the level of projects that we know that as a group, we can control that risk. We can, we can mitigate that risk per project. You know, so that's how we operate. And we have some secret sauce that really can't talk too much about, but we have a way that we go in and we create leverage and, and create high ROIs for our investors and for ourselves as well. 
Secret sauce, huh? Cool. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to ask it's, you. It's, it's, we, we call it a spike club. You know, you can't first right. move on spike club, you know. <laughs> My name is Tyler Durden. <laughs> <laughs> I should get a shirt that says that and see if anybody recognizes it. Yeah, right. So since you are a fund, does, does, would I have to be accredited to participate? So depending upon where – so I'm just going to give basic information about – structures. Of don't want you to get in trouble. Don't break any SEC yeah. rules. So yeah, I've got to be very, very careful about that. SEC, Big Brother's always watching. So the way they work, funds work in general, syndicated funds work is there's, so since, so in 2009, the Jobs Act came out. And I think that's when the crowdfunding rules came out. You know, you see these platforms, you can go online, you can, as a, as a non-accredited investor, get in. So just in case for people that know or don't know, accredited investor is a individual entity that has, well, individually has a million dollars of net worth, not including their homestead, or they make $200,000 a year for two years in a row as a single person or $300,000 as a married couple. And there's some other caveats. So let's say you are a doctor or attorney. You don't make the full 300. You might make 220 as a married, as a family, but because you're sophisticated enough, you own your own business. There's other you can, or you're a tax guy or something like that, like CPA, you could technically qualify as an accredited investor. So don't think, I tell people, don't look at not having the asset as a way of disqualification because there are other ways that you can get into qualifying as sophisticated. So like, so if you have business acumen, if you've been a flipper, you understand the real estate industry, uh, you trade, you work in some form of capital market and you can prove that you can definitely it's a way that you might be able to also get into that accredited game. I was just talking with a parent, uh, our son's this Montessori, and they were saying, yeah, you know, he asked what I did. He's like, I always see you on the phone and I always see you drop your kids off. You know, what do you do? And I was like, well, I'm a capital. He's like, oh, that's awesome. And he, he's like, we've been always trying to get into these investments, but we're not accredited and we can't ever get in any. And so I was kind of explaining to him a little bit the game and, you know, if you can learn some stuff or create this. But a lot of people don't realize if you have retirement accounts too, you know, now I'm not a CPA, I'm not a lawyer, not all, you know, give my disclaimer there. Yeah, all the full caveats and disclaimers. Yeah, all the full caveats. So I tell people definitely go talk to your professional, you know, a financial professional, find out where you're at. And I guess it goes back to being an entrepreneur, a business person, and especially if you're going to be a private lender, really find out what your number is now, your value is now. Have that goal where you want to be. How do I get to these next levels? How do I really create more passive investments so I can get into these investments that are bringing out these private equity investors, bringing out these huge returns? So without having to go in and physically do the work for myself, if I love doing what I'm doing, I tell people there's a business aspect to real estate. I'm sure you know this, but a lot of people don't take in consideration like, well, I want to invest in real estate. And it's like, well, do you want to do real estate or do you want to just benefit from the gains and the mechanisms that real estate offers. You can't understand that business aspect or that business portion of real estate. You really can set yourself up for a lot of risk and have some big losses. That's a great point that you bring up because that that was one thing that I learned very quickly was I said, I wanted to be a real estate investor. What I really meant was, I think I want to get into the real estate business of investing. Mm -hmm. And it, it hit me in the face very quickly. Like, man, I've done all this work to try to find a property and I can't just put it in cruise control now. Now I really have to go to work. Yeah. To get, yeah. you know, everything going. And that's where private lending became very uh, appealing to yeah. me because of my schedule and uh, with my where I work. I have a, I, everyone 
listeners are probably tired of hearing me say this. I have a job that I like. I don't yep. hate going to work. Yeah. Yeah. And I just re- and it pays me well. But I just realized that it's various reasons. It's not going to take me to where I want to get retirement wise and, and everything else. And, and, and having, I'm going to have to pay for two weddings. So <laughs> I've got to make some coin. While you gotta, this, yeah, man. You oh, know? That's not including before you can get there, proms and all that stuff. <laughs> My, you know, it's yeah, um, shotguns, you know, you got to get oh, the first thing oh, when the girls are born. Yeah. I'd go get the shotguns and <laughs> keep them well oiled and home. And, yeah. You know, a lot of ammunition. You got two daughters, man. That's what's up. <laughs> yeah. Boys are not welcome at the house. That's what's, yeah. And I'll uh, make sure I keep my boys away. Yeah. Well, as long as you're with them, we'll uh, bring your wife. But no, anyway, uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. you've described what is an accredited investor. And, but you also described ways, I don't want to say get around. Legally, you can yeah, become accredited. Everything is, you know, kind of a shade of gray. I think a lot of people look at things as black and white. Let's look at where the shades of gray are. And do you qualify? I'm not saying get around something, but. If you're really in a position to where, or at least have a, and now you, I tell people have that goal. That was one of the things I really had to learn, really learned it. And at TSU was really having that specific goal. And then knowing also where your number is, you know, what is that? What number are you shooting for? What purpose are you doing this for? I just want to make money. Well, then you won't, you won't because you don't really have, what does that mean? A dollar, thousand dollars. Is that a dollar a day, a thousand dollars? And like, is a thousand dollars a year? Like, you need to know specifically what your goal is and where you want to be. You know, when you understand that, and then not only that, know your number. What is why you're doing that? The purpose of why you're doing it. So when you can figure that out, you can reverse engineer back to go. Maybe you don't need to be an accredited investor to reach the goal that you want to reach. Maybe you do. And not saying that either way is wrong or right, but for somebody who has gone and they're, you know, they've done the work and they want to now kind of sit back so much and they don't want to do that business side of things and. Like I said, I love my job. I'm really good at what I do, create great income, or I've been prudent with my money. I've saved and put in the right instruments. And now I'm ready to kind of ramp that up a little bit more. Just figure out what where you're at and what your plan is and really sit down and take some real thought. It doesn't really take, it's, not, it's really not rocket science. You just got to sit down and do it. And I think that's one of the biggest things I tell people, just sit down and do it. And when I finally sat down and did it for myself, I realized, oh, it's not, I'm not that far off. And I think you talked earlier about crossing that line. You think it's just this huge chasm and mm-hmm. it's just this line you cross. One of my business partners, he was like, you know, when we got really got this thing going, he was like, you're doing it. I've been so in this prep mode, getting all this knowledge together and these business plans and going through this PPM and description agreement, all this stuff and fine tuning everything and making sure all this was right. And when we got to the point where it was happening, it was just happening. He was like, yeah, you thought it was going to be like some big fanfare and this grand opening was like, no, it's just like you just walk into it and you're there. A lot of times it's not as far off as what we think it is. Right. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Can you tell us a little bit more about the way you guys work or perhaps maybe some of your projects? Yes and no. Since we're private, I really can't talk too much about specifically the deals that we're in right now. But we are working a couple deals. We have two deals here in Houston, just interface with a group out of Memphis, that's doing some great social impact stuff. So back to, I'm a National Wildlife Federation fellow, class of 2014, for the work that I was doing in the sustainable spaces and, you know, attacking food deserts, things like that, with that work I was doing at TSU. So I have a heart for sustainability and social impact. So I love doing that. You know, we're looking at our developments that we do, having all the, as much, we cram as much green technology in the in as we can that, you know, the ROI will allow us to put in. 
you can't go full bore sometimes, but we definitely, when the opportunity presents itself, we put that in. You know, we're, we have a methodology on how we, the types of houses, the quality of homes we want to build. I was working with a company this time, started this time last year up in Austin. They worked in container homes. I've always had this want to do alternative housing, you know, things like that, just different ways. And the technologies we were using were very, very unique, kind of the zero energy, zero carbon footprint homes. So we have just a philosophy, the triple bottom line philosophy, people, planet, profits. It's got to be, of course, good for our profits. Then it's got to be good for people and got to be good for the planet. And that's our philosophy, how we look at things. I like that. And I, I want to back up container homes. You mean like the Connex containers that come on ships, those big metal things? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like the, on the metal shipping containers that people okay. see. We had joined forces with this company and they were doing some really good things out of Austin. A lot of people now have kind of entered that space, figuring that space out. think it's a good space to be in to a degree, but you've got to really understand it and and know the market. I think a lot of people are disillusioned. They watch, you know, some of these shows and they go, oh, I can build this house for just thousand dollars. Well, yeah, you can, you can build it for 60 grand, but can you get it CO? Is it up to code? Is it, so when you, so, or we're capital group. So we also have to take into consideration, this thing has got to be able to resell. What is it doing? And I think a lot of people that, you know, they kind of look at themselves by them. They look at what I do by myself. Maybe as an individual, it's one thing, but as a company, you know, we have to look at what does that look like for the whole market? We go in and start putting in these $100,000 homes in a neighborhood that's got comps at 160, 170, 200,000. And that's going to bring down values. It's going to mess up the economics of things. So it's a balance that you've got to find of being able to create these things. A lot of people were really shocked at, you mean, you mean I got to, it costs me the same amount of money to build this as it does that. Well, there's a lot more that goes into it. And as far as being an appraisal. But what I tell people is when you do that, it creates more wealth for you because you're capturing that appraisal rise. When you build that, it captures more on that back end. So yet you're paying the same amount, but you have more value created than you would possibly in a traditional home. So. Yeah. And just for the record, CO is a certificate of occupancy. You got to get sorry. that from your local middle. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> it was some of the comments that come in on the um, podcast when I early started on, it was like, yeah, I, I know exactly what you're saying, but you know, all the acronyms. And so people are like, hey, can you break it down? So yeah, so like if you built in, say, a city of Austin, Houston, Boston, New York, you've got to get a certificate of occupancy after the building is yeah. erected. And they come in and say, okay, yes, it's safe for people to either live, dwell, work, or whatever the, the use of the space mm-hmm. is going to be. So how can our listeners find out more about Major Gains Capital and Brandon Cottingham? Yeah, so you can go check us out. Our website is uh, Major Gains Capital. And it's gains with a G, G-A-I-N-Z. So major, M-A-J-O-R-G-A-I-N-Z, capital, C-A-P-I-T-A-L, uh, dot com. Um, you can also find me at Brandon, at B-R-A-N-D-Y-N, at Major Gains Capital, and or info at Major Gains Capital. But if you go to our website, we're there, and you'll be able to get an interface with us. And so, yeah, we'd love to hear from you guys and see about possibly potentially you know, working with developers. We love working with developers other builders, you know, anybody that's got projects. Like I said, we have high due diligence standards. A lot of developers, they love working with us because, you know, we help them really look at their business in a a more sophisticated way. So. Interesting. You got any social handles? Are you out on social media? Yeah. So Instagram, and uh, you can find me at Sublime Wealth, uh, S-U-B-L-I-M-E-W-H-E-A-L-T-H, Sublime Wealth. And or Facebook, Brandon Cottingham, B-R-A-N-D-Y-N-C-O-T-T-I-N-G-H-A-M. 
So, yeah. And then you find us on Major Games Capital, Facebook, Major Games Capital, uh, IG as well. Cool. Oh, my Twitter is at Sublime Wealth also. Sublime Wealth. I like that. Yeah. That's a cool handle. That is is cool. Brandon, thank you for coming on the show today, telling us about the fund, your background especially, and really your philosophy of it's not just about money. And that, that took me a very, very long time to figure out that if you do it for a goal, for the passion, or for a reason, then usually the money will follow. Yeah. And I like how, you know, you have your triple bottom line. No matter what side of the global warming debate you're on, I look at it very simple and I don't take sides. I look at it as the earth is the house that I rent. Hmm. If I don't leave it in as good or the same condition, better condition. I, yeah, yeah. Better, when I got it into it, then I'm going to get hit. I'm going to have to pay my, my deposits lost, et cetera, et cetera. So that's always kind of the way I looked at it. I'm smack dab in the middle of my family. I got people on both sides. <laughs> yeah. Know, I think most of, I think a lot of us yeah. uh, business entrepreneurs are really kind of sitting in that space. Awesome. Yeah. So, well, great. Thanks again. You can find out more, get everything, all the information, contact info on the show notes. And I wish you a, a happy and prosperous investing, Brandon. Thanks again. Man, Keith, thank you so much, man. It's been an honor allowing me to share my story. I really, really, really appreciate it. Anytime. Thank you. Okay, I hope everyone enjoyed the interview with Brandon Cottingham. I know I had a great time doing the interview with him and want to thank him again for coming on. And you can get all the information that Brandon spoke about, his con- how to get in touch with him, get more information about what he does, his fund, but also the books that he mentioned. Just go to privatelenderpodcast.com, go to episode 51, and you'll find all those links in the show notes. Well, I think that's going to do it for episode 51. I want to thank you for sharing your time with me today and listening. And if you haven't yet, please go to privatelenderacademy.com and get on the waiting list. I am working as hard as I can to get something out in the new year or in the first quarter. I was hoping for January. It's probably not going to happen or no, it won't happen. So just know that I am, I'm busting tail to try to get some things done and get it up and running. And I appreciate all the support and everybody that's been reaching out and giving feedback. I really, really do appreciate it. Please keep it coming. Please also rate and review on iTunes or whatever platform you use to listen to this podcast. I would greatly appreciate that because that's the best way to organically reach people like you, like-minded people like us who want to learn more about this and give the podcast a little more exposure. Also, please connect with me, social media. You can go to privatelenderpodcast.com, find out more information on and link to all of my profiles. So I just want to say thanks again for sharing your time with me in your ear today. And I wish you healthy and happy and prosperous private lending and investing. I'll see you on the next episode. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Private Lender Podcast with your host, Keith Baker. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit privatelenderpodcast.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review, and we'll catch you next time.